Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Welcome to the WHO Health Pavilion side event called Healthy Prescription for a Green New Deal from Advocacy to Action. Welcome to you all. We'll start, if you don't mind, we'll start with a chant because we're here for climate justice and I'm from MedAct, which is an organization that is mobilizing health workers for social justice because we believe that social justice and climate justice are one and the same. So we'll start with a chant. So I'll say, what do we want? And you say, climate justice. And then I ask, when do we want it? And then you say, now. And then hopefully we can get more people in and involved and they'll be like, what's going on? What do we want? Climate justice. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? When do we want it? Now. Thank you. Hopefully that's fired up people a little bit. So we have a panel event here, and I know it's a fairly intimate community here, but we also have many people joining online, so welcome to everyone joining from afar. So MedAct, as I said, is an organization that's based in the UK, um, and it campaigns for social justice on a variety of topics. One of its campaigns is called Health for a Green New Deal. And this campaign is mobilizing health workers for a transformative Green New Deal, mainly in the UK, but some other work that the Health for a Green New Deal campaign does is we're working as part of a team of co-organizers and a collective called the People's Health Tribunal Collective. And essentially, this collective is a forum for deep listening and radical reimagining of climate and health justice, focusing on stories from the front lines of climate violence and extractivism. We had our first People's Health hearing as part of the People's Summit in Glasgow last year. And this year, well, next year, in April 2023, we have a People's Health Tribunal happening. We also work within the UK, so Health for a Green New Deal, is campaigning for a Green New Deal bill and being implemented in the UK, um, within the UK Parliament. So that's some of the work that we do. To our speakers now, so we have a fantastic panel of speakers today. We have Assad Rahman, who is the Director of War on Want, an anti-poverty charity, and also the co-founder of the COP26, so the Climate Justice Coalition, sorry, it was the COP26 coalition last year. It's now the Climate Justice Coalition, a, coali a coalition, a collective of organizations around the world that is working towards transformative and radical climate justice. We have John from the Philippines, so John Bonifacio, who's the national coordinator of the Calicasan People's Network for the Environment, pushing for a People's Green New Deal in his local community. So very, very excited to hear about that. He's also the spokesperson and former national coordinator of YACAP, which is the Youth Advocates for Climate Action Philippines. We also have Erica Artiaga Cruz, who's joining online. I just saw Erica. Hi, Erica. Erica, who is a physician from Ecuador. She's the coordinator of the People's Health Movement Extractive Industry Circle. Erica is the coordinator of the Environment Network of the Latin America Social Medicine Association. She's a public health educator at the Universidad San Francisco de Quito, and she's a fantastic organizer and feminist advocate. Welcome to you, Erica. 
And finally, we have Omar El Mawi, who is the coordinator of the Stop East Africa Crude Oil Pipeline project from Kenya. And we also have, he's also promoting a green and sustainable energy future for Kenya through decolonize. So welcome, welcome to all of you. Thank you for having us, um, WHO as well. What a panel, what a fiery panel. We'll start by just doing a quick show of hands. Who here identifies as the health community? Okay, almost everybody, okay. Um, and who has heard of a Green New Deal? Almost, ish, okay. Oh, great, okay. So hopefully by the end of this event, you will be able to appreciate what a global Green New Deal is and what a Green New Deal looks like in different scenarios, what the different aspects of it are, and what we as a health community can do to engage with it and support and act in solidarity with people mobilizing for a Green New Deal. And we'll start with Assad. So Assad, if you could set the scene, what is the global Green New Deal? Hopefully that's on. Okay. Rookie mistake. Sorry about that. Uh, I am a bit sort of brain foggy at the moment. Um, I, before I do that, actually, can I, I, I just wonder if it's worth saying something about the word climate justice. Because it's a word now that is just echoing through these halls, right? You hear it. Everybody. Civil society, governments, even business talk about climate justice. And, uh, of course, what they intended to do is strip it of it, all its meanings. And uh, it was just because Erica is on the, uh, the call there from Ecuador, and I just reminded that, you know, the issue of health has been very, very central to the development of the climate justice movement because the two key formations that came together at the end of the 1990s and the beginning of 2000 were the environmental justice movement uh, in the global north which of course was founded because of an understanding of the intersection between the health impacts, inequality, and what we call sacrifice zones of the siting of high polluting industries and how they affected particularly poor, black, brown, Hispanic people in the United States. And that movement connected with Global South movements particularly um, movements such as from Ecuador that talked about ecological debt and founded what we now know as the climate justice movement. And it had uh, key principles. And in fact, if you go back to 2002, you can see the, some of those principles. You know, it talked about that the climate was a structural crisis. This wasn't about simply about carbon. It was inequalities and injustices. It was about the root causes and drivers. It talked about what kind of justice transition we needed, how we need an equitable phase out of fossil fuels, about historical responsibility, all of those things, right? So often now we only talk about climate justice in about vulnerability, out in abstract, without understanding where that vulnerability comes from. What are the systems that drive that vulnerability? And, you know, in recent years, there's been a push, particularly in the global north, uh, for the idea of Green New Deals. And of course, we welcome that. 
and it was a, a response largely to the way that climate had been framed by mainstream environmentalists as being about polar bears and people underwater with no agency, no voice, no understanding of why the climate crisis was happening, that simply it was there and all we had to do was call for action and somehow rationally governments would act. No, as you can see in these corridors, this is a politically contested space between those who've got power and those who haven't. Economic interests that have been built over centuries of, of sacrifice, not just of geographical places, but literally of whole peoples in the pursuit of profit. And that idea, whilst in the Green New Deals in the Global North, began to weave together that we needed a social compact on poverty and climate, largely ignored the realities of what was happening in the Global South. So the f idea of a Global Green New Deal or a People's Green Global Green New Deal came from understanding that we were not facing one crisis, we were facing multiple crises and they were interconnected. And I can break down maybe four of the key pillars, right? Yeah, of course we were facing the cli crisis of climate, the importance of limiting temperatures to below 1.5, the importance of equity and justice and, and historical responsibility in doing that. But we were also facing a crisis of global inequality. Half the world still surviving the equivalent of less than $5.50, denied public services such as health, education, two billion people still facing issues of hunger, over a billion people facing issues of lack of access to water, housing. We could go on and on and on. But we also had a question about limits, right, about the biosphere and the ecosystem in which all of humanity and of course our planet survives and, and that our approach couldn't ignore that we were already breaching five of the nine planetary limits. And fourthly, to understand that none of this transition was possible without understanding first how we get here because the past is being lived in the present and the present shapes the future. And if we want to shape an alternative future, we've got to understand that this has been an arc, right? Going back from slavery to colonialism, to imperialism, to where we are in, in terms of neoliberalism. And that idea of a framework of understanding the Global Green New Deal began to uh, develop from movements in the Global South who began to think, okay, so what do we want to put forward? Because these changes and people talk here about a just transition and justice transition, all these words, emptying them as well. It's important for us to know exactly what is the goal, what is the direction and where do we want to get to. And so of course we know some fundamentals. That, and the IPCC now says that in his working group two report. That vulnerability, 14 times greater in the global south than the north, has structural reasons, colonialism, etc. If you want to tackle that vulnerability, you have to guarantee people the right to a living wage, to public services, including health and education. And we see that, of course, being played out in front of us when we look at Pakistan, when we look at the Caribbean, the Horn of Africa, Nigeria. It's those things that determine your experience of the climate impact. And it's your country's ability to be able to respond that shapes what that experience is. So when Germany had a flood, they were able to announce immediately 30 billion euros to, uh, to in response. When Pakistan has a flood and affects a third of the country, it has to go to the IMF to beg for more debt-creating loans. That's experience, that's why we weave in debt, inequality, and structural inequality as understanding what we're trying to fix, but also our solutions. Thank you so much, Assad, for weaving social justice and poverty and colonialism 
all together with environmentalism as it was and that's why we're here with the climate justice movement um, and also thank you for calling out a lot of the lip service that takes place and climate justice being essentially co-opted by many groups um, inside COP, outside COP and really want to acknowledge what you've said there about inequality between the global north and the global south and in Max Achel's book The People's Green New Deal he writes Development in the global north can is almost always coupled with de-development in the global south. And essentially, I love how so, how so beautifully you weaved in all those complexities. And we can't keep administering our way out of the climate crisis using the same solutions. And the Green New Deal can offer some of these structural things that we can get at, um, including our extractivist and neo-colonial practices that we see playing out even in our own health systems. I want to bring Erica in now, if that's okay. Erica, if you can tell us a bit about the relationship between extractivism and health and whether you think the Green New Deal can offer us anti-extractive solutions. Thank you, Ali. It's so nice to be here. Um, well, the, we talk about structural causes for diseases. So in social medicine, which is um, a great brand of how do we frame health here in, in Latin America, we see um, health as a product of the society, right? And then if we have societies that do extractivism for a living, especially in the global South, depending um, mainly of primary uh, product exportation, then you have ill health. Most of the, one thing that we should question as health communities, um, we do not only need the building or of infrastructure of health services, because in Ecuador, in my country, for instance, most of the building of these infrastructures was coming from extraction of oil. So if you have the primary revenue <clears throat> of the country being oil or mining, and that you use that for development, for having education, for having health, for having public access to water, and then you're, you end up destroying the communities in the sacrifices zones in, in, uh, <clears throat> in a no-brainer way to produce health. Um, we see uh, then climate change, not as the end of the road, but as the byproduct of a lot of root causes, right? And one of the principal root causes is extractivism. Um, in the global south, or mainly in Ecuador, we do not have these open discussions about Green New Deal because it depends. <laughs> we are still discussing about what what um, has been said previously. How do you conform in inequalities? How are the inequalities being produced? So it depends. The, will the Green New Deal tackle Bretton Woods institutions? Will the Green New Deal uh, will um, uh, kind of elaborate and think about uh, what the International Monetary Fund is doing with the configuring configuration of economies in the global south? What the World Bank is doing with the configuration of agendas, the W with the configuration of the WHO agenda, with the configuration of the, how we see global health. 
So we need to uh, start analyzing everything. For instance, will the new Green New Deals or the Global North will um, uh, try to portray another form of global financial institutions? The, there's a, this investor state dispute settlement that when you even try to, as a country, sovereign country, start or stop producing fossil fuels, then the oil companies in the global north are suing the states in the south. So um, the Green New Deals are um, in their discourse. This, this sounds really nice, right? We are going to go through a just transition for a new economy and a new ways of producing green new jobs. But these green new jobs, are those based on what? This green new energy, is this based on not oil, let's say, but is this based on mining and extraction again on sacrifices zones in the South? How are we discussing the implication of this investor state dispute settlement in the economies in the global South? What happens? In Ecuador, for instance, Peremco, which is a French um, oil company, uh, we sue, uh, we start uh, demonstrating our own sovereignty and saying, okay, Peremco, you are not going to take that much amount of profits. Instead, the Ecuadorian state is going to be sovereign. So they demanded the Ecuadorian state for breach of contract. The demand of Peremco for breach of contract to Ecuador is three times what Peremco is supposed to pay us for environmental reparations. So where is the focus here? in these international financial institutions and the international economic regulations. The focus is on capital and profit. So even when the Green New Deal sounds like this new way of relating, if we do not tackle the international financial institutions and how the economy is built, then there's going to be very little that we advance. And we have been uh, fighting the capitalist system for centuries now. So how the Green New Deals are affected towards a better climate justice and health justice depends on how we're gonna tackle these issues. Is that the, the uh, Green New Deals are gonna be uh, about equity, mainly equity and colonization. The colonization that needs reparations and uh, serious discussions of loss and debts. We also need to tackle um, human rights, and I want to end by acknowledging my solidarity with us, more than 60,000 political prisoners in Egypt and uh, to ask for free Allah uh, from uh, the prison and his very sacrificing hunger and water strike. That's pretty much it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Erica, um, for calling out about the predatory ways that the international financial institutions treat the global south and the fact that we need a Green New Deal that is not based on greed and the global south continuing to be sacrificed when the global north will not sacrifice anything. And also, finally, for talking about human rights because what is the point of working on climate work when we're not doing human rights work. And we weep for polar bears, we weep for our families, but why are we not weeping and wailing for Allah who's in prison on hunger strike? Thank you so much for raising that.
I'll come to you, Omar. So the Green New Deal obviously has many demands. Um, you, you should all have action cards, actually. And in those cards, when you scan the QR code, you can find a digital copy of this document, which is the public health case for a Green New Deal. And that has a list of demands for, for what the global Green New Deal this is UK specific, but there's also um, references to what a global Green New Deal demands. One of those principles of a Green New Deal is acting in solidarity. And one of the demands is decarbonizing the economy. And Omar is from the Stop East Africa crude oil pipeline project. And my question to you is, how can the health community act in solidarity with this movement? That's the question uh, that we should be asking. Um, and, and it's important because um, the health community, in my mind, they are one of the most important partners that need to be involved uh, in the struggle for climate justice and decarbonizing the African continent. And to just to give a background uh, perspective is, uh, you know, sometime in the 1800s, countries in Europe sat somewhere in Berlin and, and divided Africa in terms of who's going to take what. Uh, but then a hundred of years later, they're now sitting again and deciding who's going to be scrambling for the resources that we have within the continent. It's the reason why we're seeing uh, a lot of push uh, for the same corporates that have been guilty of getting us to the climate crisis we're in today, who are trying to, uh, in some ways, uh, package uh, fossil fuels as a transition fuel for Africa to get uh, to development. Um, and, and, and therefore, that's why we're trying to do a lot to bring the different players uh, to be involved in helping us to push against this sort of lies and, 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 and problem that we're about to be uh, uh, facing. Um, and, and the health community therefore becomes one of the key people to be involved uh, because when you talk about these fossil fuel projects, it's definitely the climate crisis and the climate impacts we're talking about, and there's some sort of health uh, issues that it comes with that. But then also there's the many uh, uh, evidence of people who are falling sick because of the pollution that is coming from them. Um, and, and the thing is, we cannot, at the end of the day, you're human beings, right? Definitely brilliant, uh, uh, clever, and, and genius human beings because of the many books you've had to read before you get to practice. Uh, but you are human beings, who are, and you have families, and you have people who look up to you who are also facing these problems. Um, and, and the problem with that is, uh, if you talk, for instance, about the uh, East African crude oil pipeline, it's going to be the longest heated pipeline uh, in the world, over 1,400 kilometers, uh, starting from the west of Uganda, going all the way to Tanzania, just so that they can get this oil into tankers and take it into Europe. Uh, but the many impacts that we are talking about in the process, because it's cutting across uh, key land that is important, fertile land for agriculture. So what happens when there are oil spills around this area and the food production that's being done? It's cutting across more than a third of the pipeline is going to be located within the Lake Victoria Basin. The Lake Victoria Basin is the second largest lake in the world and the largest lake in Africa. And it supports over 40 million people for both food and for drinking. And therefore, what does that mean to the health community? You know, if people drink uh, water that has been poisoned by, by an oil spill that came from this oil field. Um, and, and finally, 
Um, it's also important because uh, uh, the, the thing about climate crisis and the climate justice we are speaking about within Africa is that we need to get as many of us who are working on different issues to come together for us to have any chance of being able to come out uh, uh, with victory. Uh, the problem is, I don't know about Europe and the rest of the world, but in Africa, we're working in silos. You'll see people who are working on food, working by themselves. You'll see people who are on climate. They're only you know, dealing with their own bubble. Uh, health people are only interested about health and the jargons that it comes with. Uh, people who are dealing with other issues. Everyone is thinking about themselves and their issues and their subjects without necessarily thinking about how can we tackle these things together. While on the other side, the people who are putting us into these problems that we're in today, the corporates and the governments, they find ways, despite the competition, despite the interest, to work together when it's about something that threatens them and threatens uh, their sort of uh, profits uh, that they are hoping to gain. So I'm hoping, if anything, that by the end of this conversation, we find a way to make sure that we open uh, ourselves to be able to really work with each other. Because for me, I can't necessarily win this fight if I don't have the health community to help me to provide the evidence of why, because of health, certain reasons from the health sector, this is not possible. If I am to go to court to litigate the hell out of these people, I will definitely need the health community, someone to stand as an expert, to say these are the proven uh, uh, ailments or, 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 or impacts from the health perspective that people should be looking at. Uh, and definitely it comes with all the different other facets, uh, and therefore it becomes really, really important. Um, the other thing that I wanted to speak about is a campaign that we worked with um, just to sort of give us uh, the, the, the hopes to know that it's possible to win uh, when you actually come uh, in a fight but you're prepared. Because it's not just about coming uh, but just saying you are against something, but you need to be organized, you need to know and present your case so that you can win. And that example is the anti-coal movement that we started in Kenya, the decolonized campaign. And what happened with it and why we were able to win is this crazy idea that our government, uh, together with uh, a few uh, uh, companies, uh, felt that since we've now discovered coal in the country, then the best thing they could do is to start the first coal plant in East Africa uh, and Central Africa. Um, and <laughs> the, the best thing that they could uh, share with us about the project is that the chimney for the project is going to be the tallest man-made uh, uh, structure in Africa, and, and they want us to be really uh, proud about that. Um, and, and why we were able to stand and speak and win against it is because we were able to get folks like you in the, med in the health sector to come in and convince the courts because we litigated and we had experts coming in from all different parts of the world because we don't have a coal plant in Kenya and therefore we don't necessarily have the experts to speak on the health issues to come, someone from South Africa who's practicing on health, to come and say the health diseases and ailments they've seen. And therefore, just to wrap this up because I'm seeing, uh, I'm taking uh, quite some time, is really to underscore the fact that we can't win this fight against the climate crisis, against the many inequalities that uh, my friend Assad has spoken about without all of us finding a way of working together despite the many differences that we have because it's diversity that we need to celebrate and it's important that all of us are involved. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Omar. Um, and something that I think some people in the health community have been reflecting on is the health, the b modern biomedical system, Western biomedical system that we work in has been built off the backs of 
slavery, colonialism, and all the issues that Assad has been talking about historically. And therefore, when we engage with movements like the one Omar is part of and has won because of litigation, for example, it's so important for us as the health workers to approach it with humility and not oppress even further because we as a health community have oppressed in the past and continue to do so as well in whatever ways, whether that's through hostility within health systems or still not providing justice for minoritized people in terms of access to healthcare or even recognizing that their inequalities and health inequalities are real. So thank you so much for that call, Omar. And um, I hope that we can all commit to doing that work structurally to change, but also doing it in solidarity and doing it with humility with our colleagues who are on the front lines of this. And we won't, we promise that we won't do it with, we'll do it in account with accountability to those who are at the front lines. And we won't just try and inject health into it if that's not what they want us to do. We will listen to them and we'll be guided by what they want the health community to do. Thanks, Omar. Coming to you, John, you're doing some super interesting work with the Kalikasan People's Network. Can you tell us how you're using the principles of a People's Green New Deal in your local work? All right, so hi, everyone. Uh, I'll just give a bit, of, a bit of context so that we can build how exactly the People's Green New Deal in the Philippines that we're pushing right now has taken shape. So the Philippines, of course, is one of the most climate change impacted countries in the world. We're the fourth most impacted, I believe, in terms of long-term risk, uh, the top when it comes to disaster risk. Um, and of course, on top of that, we've had uh, several issues with the COVID-19 pandemic, how the approach by our government was very militarized, uh, lo locking down, clamping down on human rights, preventing people from going out rather than having a more holistic public health response. And as mentioned by Assad earlier, the I'd like to draw from that that the past is lived in the present. Um, it's very clear in the Philippines as well because we're still reeling from the impacts of colonialism, imperialism that has um, essentially cut into our capacity to develop, cut into our capacity to be resilient when it comes to these kinds of impacts. And I'd just like to mention how, on a personal note, how the intersection between health and climate is also something that's very close to my heart. Because actually just two years ago, I was a medical student and then I found out that my medical school would be underwater by the year 2050 due to rising sea levels. So that made me realize I had to change what I was doing and really pursue this path instead of becoming a full-time climate and environmental activist. So we're glad to share, again, as mentioned by Abby earlier, um, in Kalikasan People's Network for the Environment, along with other, a lot of other civil society and people's organizations in the Philippines. We've been mobilizing a lot of environmental, youth climate groups, um, health groups, workers groups, etc., around what we would call the People's Green New Deal. So just to dissect what that means. So of course, you're probably all familiar with the Green New Deal. Uh, the New Deal, of course, was this economic stimulus package that was pushed in the US under the Roosevelt administration. But the Green New Deal is sort of a rehash of that, uh, trying to have that ecological attentiveness incorporated into it. But I think something that we're proud to also push for in the Philippines in particular. And I think a lot of the uh, different Green New Deals, the more progressive ones that are being pushed are also incorporating this aspect is where do the people factor in? Because sometimes you have all of these different uh, proposals, but at the end of the day, you're neglecting a lot of human rights. So it's important that we have to center the people and of course the planet in the process. So the People's Green New Deal, just a bit of history. It's a 
It's an initiative launched by different civil society organizations, people's organizations, trade unions, so many different organizations based in the Philippines. Uh, and we're working on, and we essentially worked on drafting like a proposal, a comprehensive um, um, essentially package to address both the ecological and economic crisis that's facing the Philippines. So um, it was filed actually last year in 2021, late last year, and it was refiled under our new administration um, as a house resolution. So it's a legislative, uh, it's, it's partially a legislative initiative. Um, but right out, I, but I think the most important part of the People's Green New Deal is the fact that it's taking a two-pronged approach because we all know that something as progressive as the Green New, as the people, as a Green New Deal, um, for example, in the Green New Deal that we filed, it's very, the language is very strong. It calls out colonialism. It calls out ecological debt. It calls out imperialism. It calls for agroecological agro approaches to be practiced instead of like the uh, corporate uh, agriculture that we're, we're we're experiencing in the Philippines today. So the two-pronged approach we're taking is while it's, it's going through that uh, parliamentary approach, going through all the uphill battles and all the, all the um, issues that go with that path, we're also taking the grassroots approach as well. So the, the, essentially what the Green New Deal is capturing, the different projects and different proposals it's uh, forwarding through the legislative process, we're also allowing grassroots or mobilizing and capacitating grassroots organizations to do those things right now. So we're not waiting for the lawmakers, we're not waiting for the senators to be able to file the bill for our president to sign it because we know that will be a very difficult task and it's, it's hard to throw all our effort in that area, but it's also about mobilizing the people on the ground. So ex for example, like working with farmers groups for to pursue agroecological practices, encouraging um, urban poor groups to uh, set up community gardens for not just for or, uh, food security, but also for urban greening. So these kinds of things, you can see how very, how it has that capacity or potential to become a very holistic approach. And again, the importance is with the urgency of the climate crisis, we're addressing the problem here today. It's not something we're waiting for the people in power to make those decisions because we have the power as well. So on top of that, just to highlight and connect to the health aspect of the People's Green New Deal, uh, a central aspect, a central theme that we're pushing forward under the People's Green New Deal is a just recovery from the pandemic as well. Uh, in the context of a general recovery for the Philippines, economic, ecological, health, public health, etc. And I think it's really important to hammer in the fact that climate justice is health justice. So recognizing that a lot of the grassroots solutions that are pursuing climate justice or pursuing um, inequalities in their communities are actually also health interventions, are actually also climate interventions. So example of this would be, again, the agroecological uh, practices that are being uh, forwarded by some of our partners who are uh, peasant organizations. They're able to, by asserting their claim on the land, they're able to grow um, different crops. They're also able to improve their nutrition in that sense. They're also able to plant like uh, medicinal plants for them to use during um, when thing, because medicines are so expensive. So these kinds of things uh, really open up the, the space for uh, communities on their own terms to address climate health injustice. And um, I think overall, uh, another framework, of course, is um, uh, getting rid of that whole process of de-development that you mentioned that has come with co uh, colonialism, imperialism, and still continues today. So really, it's uh, the People's Green New Deal is also an economic stimulus package that holds, that attempts to hold uh, the corporations, the mega corporations accountable by taxing them properly, but and also towards building and uh, developing the capacity of the country, of the Philippines, um, towards this ro more robust health system, healthcare system, that serves both as, of course, a, a mitigation process, because, a mitigation 
um, effort because it's hopefully carbon neutral, etc. But also adaptation, given that we know that the impacts of climate change are going to get worse. They are felt uh, in one way through health. So it's important that we're able to absorb those kinds of shocks and address the needs of the people as we move forward. So again, it's very exciting, all of these developments. Actually, if you're all interested in learning more, I have a lobbying kit in English that I only have a few copies, but if people are interested in learning more about what we're doing in the Philippines, feel free to approach me after this. I'd be happy to share more information about the work we're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, John, for all the work that you're doing and for just telling us a little bit about that two-pronged approach, especially about, you know, you said the language is strong, but also you're using, you're going down the legislation route, pushing for that, going through the pain of that, um, as is, you know, the process here is very painful. Um, and, you know, loss and damage, for example, it's the closest existing framework that we have, but we know that Loss, you know, reparations and reparative justice is so much more than loss and damage, and there are so many forms that it can take. Um, and we'll touch about, we'll touch on finance um, in a minute. But I want to go to um, all of you again, if that's okay, in terms of what actions can strengthen this Green New Deal movement. Um, I hope everyone has got a little bit of a clear idea of what the demands of the Green New Deal are, the origins and things from the first part of the discussion. Um, but it would be really good to hear about what actions can strengthen this movement that is developing. I'll come to you first, Assad. So sometimes I think we look at the, the reality of the world out there and it feels a bit overwhelming, doesn't it? I mean, there's so much to fix, so much that we need to do. So I'm reminded of uh, Aaron Dutu Roy and how she describes. She describes and says, they've woven a tapestry of injustice with a thousand threads. And that's true. There's a thousand threads there's also some threads that if you pull can unravel that tapestry. And so what we've got to do is identify what are those transformative threads that if we pull, it has an impact beyond that individual issue. Secondly, I think as Omar said, we've got to think about power. People often tell me, you know, oh, I'm so disappointed in the outcome of this COP or these cops. Well, this is a reflection of the reality of the outside. It's a reflection of our power versus their power. They are way more powerful than we are at the moment. They have the ears of government, the fossil fuel lobbyists that are walking around here, the economic interests. So how do we build our collective power? Now, when we try and build collective power, we know you need a vision. You need to be able to describe what we're going to fight and what we're changing. You need some concrete demands. Yes, there is a million things to do, but if you look at the history of social movements and social change, you realize that there have been moments where our movements have been able to articulate those crises into very, very simple terms. Because say during the Russian Revolution, they talked about it as being about land and peace and bread in a the Asian subcontinent 
it was talked about roti kapramakan, house, clothes, food. You know, in this region, people talked about it as bread and justice. So we know that there are ways for us to be able to talk about this that are, have a vision, but then have demands, and then try and build collective power. Now, collective power, the weaving together of the movement of movements, isn't something just in abstract. It has to be done with the idea, how do we then use our collective power to win certain fights? And that's where I think the health community is so critical. So when we look at the last two years, or the last two and a half, three years, and we're reminded how in a moment of a global pandemic that affected every citizen in all of the world, we had rich leaders that said, no one is safe until we're all safe, and then had a race with the Global South for PPE equipment, and hoarded more than they needed and left the Global South without, created a vaccine with public money and then said, we're gonna create vaccine apartheid. So we in the citizens in the North will be safe, but you won't be. I've continued to have unjust debt repayments. So more countries were paying debt repayments than they were on their health systems. How do we tell that and use that fight? When a moment when people recognize that actually what mattered to them was community, was family, was the importance of a health system, was recognizing public services, was so critical to how we experienced that. This is where I think the, both the storytelling as well as the building of power and then the use of power is really, really critical. How do we go beyond our circles? And I wanna just give an example just of Pakistan, my country of origin, so we all know a third of the country underwater, 33 million people displaced, a million uh, uh, livestock gone. This is a country where 70% of the people live already in poverty, where most people don't even have basic health systems. And I'll speak again from the UK government perspective, from the UK, it's where we're based. And the UK and Pakistan funds private health system, uh, private hospitals, where it costs over $350 for a room and this is a country of course where overwhelming majority of people are, are poor and now those people are not just affected by of course rising flood water lives do, livelihoods they're affected by disease because there is no basic health system so the response to the climate crisis becomes a health cr response but if you see the health response as simply about how do we get some more medicines to people without understanding well how do we make sure that people are able to build, rebuild their, not just their own lives, but the, but, the, but the economy and the society. That lends us into questions. Well, why is it Pakistan doesn't have a public health system? Why is it we can in the North fight for a health system and NHS, and why we aren't fighting for a global NHS? And I know it brings questions. Well, can we afford it? Oh, we in the north, and we see that on conversation in the loss and damage, you know, of the rich countries saying, we don't want to take responsibility because we know that we will be held liable. Well, you know, each and every year, $2 trillion flows from the global south to the global north in illicit capital flows, in profits, in unpaid taxes, and of course, unsustainable debt repayments. We saw in the last year alone during the COVID pandemic, that the wealth of the billionaire class would increase between five and 10 
trillion dollars. Enough countless times over to pay for a global health system. Right? So money is never the issue. The question is where is the money? And so we have got to, in these really critical moments, be able to find those right fights. And they are about tax, trade, and uh, the power of our corporations, because they are shaping the new reality. It's not that they don't know that the change is coming. Everybody in these booths is already saying, change is coming. The only question is, what kind of change? Who will be the winners and who will be the losers? Whether we replicate the injustices of the present into the future, or we have a difference. And that's where I think, you know, again, coming back to the health community, it's not just that how important health is in this vision of the world. It's actually also about your power as a community, your power to go beyond what the environment movement can go, beyond what social justice movement is. It's your power within communities. It's your trust that you have. That the, so when the medical professional intervenes in this, it's a much harder voice to ignore. It's a much harder community to say, well, they're just activists. So when the health community talks about the need for a people's Green New Deal and a health Green New Deal, it actually amplifies all of our movements. It opens up new spaces. It builds new power. And for me, that, I think, is the most important contribution that happens here. And I, I want to just end by you know, saying you know, a fundamental principle for all of us, and particularly for the health profession, of course, is, is about you know, your response to people in need and about harm. Well, the climate crisis is about stop doing more harm, repair the harm that you've done, and compensate for the harm that you're no longer able to repair from. And that's a simple story. And it's the same story for our public health systems as it is for the world. Thanks so much, Assad. Thanks for highlighting that the solutions that are corporate and greedy, but just dressed in green is not what we as health community should be backing. We should be backing care and cooperation. And thank you for highlighting the importance of using that power in a, strate in a strategic way, but also in solidarity. Something that um, Rupa Maria and Raj Patel write about is the fact that it's the systems that are making us sick. So it's systems of sickness that we as health people should treat as opposed to the individualized capitalist conception of health. And that's something that I hope we can all commit to unlearning and practicing. Um, I wonder, Erica, if you can talk about what you think can strengthen the health movement, um, can, str can strengthen the Green New Deal movement? I, as I, I talk, as, uh, talked before, Avi, it's not, we are not talking about Green New Deal here in the Global South, in my, in my country at least. In the Latin America, it's not a huge, uh, and I don't think it should be. <laughs> I think what we need is what Omar said before, we need to tackle all other all struggles. In Latin America, it has long been anti-capitalist, anti-free um, trade agreements, and these things, the anti-structures, 
um, we need to join the struggles that already exist. There's already a Via Campesina, food sovereignty. There's already, we do not need to, to have a, an umbrella uh, produced uh, in the global north to, uh, to group all our, all our struggles. But we need to start talking. And, and, and as Omar said, to break those silos globally, that's, that's the challenge. And um, uh, what we have been trying to do with the People's Health Hearing and the People's Health Movement is to try to join at least the health for all and um, health struggle with the anti-extractive struggle. So you do not see health only as a provision of health services or medication, but as a how do you build healthy communities. Another important issue also um, that I think we need to discuss is um, the development model we are, we are producing in the world. It's not that everybody needs the same, the same uh, to follow the same logic of development, the same kind of education or the same kind of health systems. Uh, we are here also fighting for modes of living, which are different, right? In indigenous rights or communities, are uh, the education they get, intercultural education or, uh, or education based on ways and living is different than the education that you get in the UK. Um, the, the kind of contact with the land and the kind of relationship with the land and with the earth is different. I remember when we hold one of the people's health hearings preparation, uh, Noemi, um, um, Noemi Walinga, who is from the Sarayaku people in Ecuador, and um, Patricia is talking, Patricia Walinga is talking in the COP in the food, uh, climate, uh, food for Justice Pavilion. When she was talking, she said, okay, we acknowledge that we need to overcome poverty, yes. But then we know that when in Sarayaku the road comes, the road comes, then all these kind of uh, new values and new ways of living to the youth become too. And then we are fighting to, uh, they were fighting to protect the ways of living that are more close to the earth. When the road comes and then when the, uh, this development model as the standard of the European countries or the global north comes, then an increased consumption comes. And we need to start questioning that also to in, in the Green New Deal model, in the Green New Deal movement. How do we see development? How do we see the equity for all? Are we trying to incorporate diverse points of views and diverse, diverse struggles? And um, here in Latin America or in my country, the indigenous movement is really strong and uh, um, strengthening the links of how to respect earth and other ways of living, other ways of modes of living, other uh, um, cosmovisions is essential to try to build these alliances. Thank you. Thank you, Erica, for highlighting that or reinforcing that if we want to truly act in solidarity with people, equity for all, health for all, then this, that the Green New Deal is not applicable and not necessarily relevant to your community and for critiquing some of the aspects of the narratives that, that are pushed by the Global North and ensuring that the diverse struggles are part of this movement that is called People's Green New Deal, Global Green New Deal, 
and respecting other ways of living. Sorry, I think I got lost in a second. Um, you can use, I'm just going to open up the floor to the audience. Um, there should be a slide, um, a QR code for you to go on menti.com um, and you can submit your questions there. Or I suppose it's a fairly, so that's for the online participants. For the people who are here right now, um, feel free to raise your hand and I can bring the mic to you if you have a specific question um, regarding anything that has been said so far. Is it possible to get the Mentimeter up on the slides? In the meantime, does anybody have a question in the audience that they'd like to ask our panelists? Oh, excellent. Can you tell me your name and where you're from and your question? Hi everyone, thank you for this amazing panel, first of all. I'm Emma, I'm a medical student from the Netherlands. We're here with IFMSA. Um, we're also working in our different countries in the global north, working on like a green healthcare alliances, we have those. But I'm hearing a lot here, the very great point that we need to include very much the stories of people on the front line and really listen to them. So I'm wondering now, to put this into practice, like what are spaces where we would be able to do this? Are there resources we could check out or platforms that already exist where we can connect with people for this? Thank you, thank you so much for this question and I'll invite Omar to answer it, please. Uh, thanks, Abi. Uh, definitely a good question. Um, so just to give it some background, um, I, I wanted to also mention that it's important that, you know, for Green New Deal to be people-centered. Um, and and I, I don't know about you guys, but I've never seen, like, when people are talking about a development project that has some significant health impacts, whether the people in the health sector are actually consulted so that people can know, you know, if you're going to have this kind of threat that could happen, what does it mean in terms of taking care of these people, not just financially, but even in terms of do we need to add more doctors within this area? Uh, do we need to provide certain amount of money for medication? I think that's uh, really, really important. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to really mention quickly is the fact that, you know, uh, it would be amazing if people could even use 10% of the energy that they've put in these two weeks that were here in COP for the 50 weeks that are between each COP, right? Um, and if that were possible, the, the changes and things that we'll be able to do would be pretty significant. So on your specific question around what we can do, so we have a health tribunal that's coming up in April next year. Uh, it's called the People's Health Tribunal. Um, and, and because I have a legal background, um, I do know that if we have the community speaking about the health impacts that they are facing, we normally call it hearsay uh, back home. I mean, they don't have the expertise to be talking about these stories. So it would really be amazing if we can have people in the health sector approaching Abby and saying, you know, we want to be part of this tribunal, for instance, to come and speak about some of the health consequences of this project and what it does. I think that will be really, really strong and really amazing. And then the other thing that I think it's really important, um, you know, I have a sister who's working on the health sector. Uh, and normally she tells me, you guys, before you are allowed to practice, you do an oath that's called a Hippocratic Oath, right? Not a hypocritical oath, but a Hippocratic Oath, which in many ways it's talking about how you're going to be protecting people and make sure you provide the best medicine. And for me, I find it worrying, and I'm actually surprised in a bad way, when I see same people who have taken a Hippocratic Oath, 
providing expert testimony in the fossil fuel sector who've actually contributed to the problems that we're seeing today. So maybe within your caucus and within your department, it would really be nice to come up with a way of how you can be dealing with this. Because it's not just about uh, someone making a living, but it's about also a problem that's being thrown to you because other of your colleagues are actually giving the other side the sort of uh, uh, standing to continue with the infringements that are happening. I thought those were some of the things I wanted to share. I hope they're helpful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, make sure that we're not hypocritical. <laughs> I like that. Um, just signposting the questions again. So if you scan the QR code, which is in the bottom left, then you can submit your questions on Menti. And my friend Amit will relay them um, to us. Has anybody else got a question? Yes. Please say your name and where you're from. Uh, thank you very much for the, all the panelists. It's been an extremely enlightening conversation. I'm Giacomo from Italy. Currently, I'm a researcher in climate health economics. And one of the major questions we try to ask also is how to make sure that the economic costs on the most vulnerable groups are not transmitted generationally. Because it's not only about climate-related health conditions, but also psychological comorbidities, economic costs of medicines and healthcare, care, um, which is, as you have pointed out, not accessible one. So we enter into this kind of cycles of economic determinism in which certain communities don't have economic resources or access to healthcare services. So what is your experience to approach these kind of cycles and how to break them? Thank you. Uh, can I go to John? And maybe Erica, if you wanted to add anything? Hi, okay. So I think when it comes to that point, um, I do see that a lot of the impacts of climate change are felt economically. That's one thing. Um, ultimately, when it comes to making sure that you're able to um, eat or um, you know uh, address any health problems that your family or yourself are encountering due to climate change, it's typically manifested in that way. And I think based on the work that we've been doing and the different groups that we've been engaging with in our work in Kalikasan, it's really about understanding that critical to this discussion of um, addressing the issue of climate change is the issue of sovereignty, is the issue of land, water sovereignty, especially for especially for our, uh, our farmers, our peasants, the small landholders, because that's one of the groups that we work with a lot in Kalikasan. And it's clear that when these people have the say on what they plant in their land, what the say that they, the, essentially they are able to control as a community, the certain, their engagement with nature, their engagement with uh, the ecosystems around them, it allows them that capacity to also plan ahead and also develop like community resilience in that sense. And I think that's one way to break that sort of intergenerational economic costs that are weighed in upon by climate change because at the end of the day what you want is community resilience and genuine community resilience not something where um an external what uh whatever entity gives out um these aid this aid or donations or whatever but communities themselves are in their own terms able to plan out or map out their approach to climate change and i think for in this relating the discussion to a green new deal it's really about connecting those uh community-based grassroots-based approaches linking them up together for that sort of bottom-up approach essentially scaling up what exists already today and making sure that's the case, for example, in the Philippines, across the whole Philippines, learning from the different struggles of the different communities in the country, learning from how diverse the different situations are, but understanding that we can learn from one another and moving forward from there. Thank you. Thanks so much, John. Um, Erica, did you want to come in on that at all? 
I was just thinking we need a revolution. <laughs> not, much, not much more we can do. <laughs> Sorry. It's like you can build resilient communities and then in my country we are not we have now signed a, an international monetary fund agreement and you keep cutting personnel in health in health services, cutting personnel in in the whole state institution. It's and it's not it's not gonna happen through like power power ourselves up for individual communities, the whole world needs to change. We need to tackle International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the discourse of Bill and Melinda Gates of uh, Green Revolution and only technological solutions for uh, like climate change that are gonna be solved because they, they now are producing mandioca in Africa, something like that. We need to start challenging all these powers in the WHO. So uh, it's a much more complex of how do we do this in our local communities? We are doing this and we're gonna keep fighting for, struggling for to survival. But we need a worldwide revolution that we are not getting. That's Thank you so much, Erica. Thank you. And how, I suppose, how do we make that revolution look so irresistible, right? Because we're all in this institution, we're in the WHO Health Pavilion, we have this event on Green New Deal where we're talking about capitalism, colonialism, and subverting the very system that we're in. So, you know, there's a tension between structurally changing the systems and institutions that we're part of, but then also doing that transformative work outside of the system to make the revolution look irresistible. So, and we'll do that together. Assad, do you have any thoughts and tips for how we navigate that tension? I don't think we even need to be ideological, right? I mean, this is not no longer an ideological question. We know the reality. We have got a rapidly closing window on 1.5. We're currently heading towards minimum between 2.45 to 2.8. We are no credible pathways to limit between 1.5. That doesn't mean that there are no pathways, no credible pathways being put forward. And the scale of the impacts that we're seeing are increasing, the severity of them, the, 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 the number of them. I mean, just, just while we're here, we know what's going on Nigeria, Horn of Africa, Caribbean, Pakistan. I mean, this is just in a an, in an, in number of few weeks. So we have to do two things, ultimately. We are building the resilience of our people and our communities in the face of violence, right? structural violence on a scale that is going to be unprecedented. So we have to build. And resilience, part of that resilience is absolutely about health because it's a determining factor in so many. It determines whether you're displaced or not, whether you move, it it's the question of whether you survive or don't survive impacts. It's a question of your, the, the, whether you're going to live with dignity or not. At the same time, we've got to reduce harm. And reducing harm we all recognize now. I mean, even the institutions here, they talk about uh, the new economy. They talk about a better economy, a fairer. They all recognize that neoliberalism, the idea that profit would be the determining factor of our economies and societies, that forced privatization, that unfettered power of corporations, that trickle down would work. Well, it's not worked for 50 years. It's left us where we are. So they might want to double down on that. And of course the IMF 
now is rebranding itself. It's saying we're a solution to this crisis. But, you know, just a few weeks ago, the IMF and World Bank meetings took place. And in the face of a global cost of living crisis, the IMF was say, told, look, we've got countries about to uh, 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 default on their debt repayments. We've got countries paying more in debt than they are on their own public services. We had Sri Lanka at the beginning of the year, which defaulted on its debt, right, because of combination of these crises. And the government told the people of Sri Lanka, eat less, right? That was its solution to people. People didn't have kerosene to be able to cook, to be able to transport people even to hospitals. And currently, currently, 134 countries around the world have announced programs of austerity. And the IMF has told Sri Lanka that you have to weaken your environmental standards, weaken your labor standards, make public cuts in your public expenditure for health and education, the very things that build the resilience of our communities it, as a, uh, uh, to be able to get the new IMF loan. So I'm not ideological. You don't have to be ideologically imposed. It's just common sense. These people are leading us over the edge of the precipice into catastrophe. So there has to be an alternative. And if we don't provide an alternative, there are people providing an alternative. And their alternative is authoritarianism, ethno-nationalism, walls and fences, and their narrative is actually graining ground. It's why we see it in Bolsonaro in Brazil. We see it in the Philippines. We see it with Modi in India. We see it across Europe now, from Italy, not just Hungary, but now even in Sweden, right? It is a very, very seductive narrative because it's a very simple narrative. It harps back and blames others. And unless we have got something, and I think it is possible, because we have to remember, we have changed the world before. And it was people like us who said, no, that dominant economic system or that political system we reject. And people said it was not possible until it became possible. So I think the biggest thing is actually to believe ourselves. Because if we don't believe, we'll never convince anybody else to believe that change is possible. Thank you, Assad. Thank you so much. Will everyone commit to believing in ourselves today? Yeah, good. Um, there's a question about the ne like negotiations and the health community's role in the negotiations. So we, within the health community, some of us here and outside of here, the Global Climate Health Alliance, they've been working hard to introduce health into the, ne into the negotiations and also supporting loss and damage negotiations. What advice do you have for us to push on and what is the most important role um, for health people in places like COP27? Um, Asad, do you want to take that? Sorry, Omar. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's good that you're mistaking with Asad. I think he's an amazing person. He's younger uh, and better looking. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. Um, I think uh, when I was talking about making sure we do the work even before COP, um, it would really be cool if we can get, because one of the sectors that are really organized, health is one of them. 
I mean, you guys, every country, you have some sort of your own professional board that your country and governments take it very seriously. Now imagine that every country, the health professionals and the health sector, provided its own things that they want their state to carry, to COP. So they're telling them, this is what we want you to present uh, when you're going to COP, as far as issues to do with health. Because, you know, truth be, those people have no idea uh, about the health sector and what it, it will take to do things. And then the other bit will be, you know, a lot of people are coming here and they're doing the same thing about doing things in silos. And we normally accomplish more when we work together. So even not just within the cross other sectors, but even within the health sector, it will also be nice if you could find a way within the boards to work with the other hundred and something countries to so that you can come up with your own things that you say these are what we need to see in the text that is coming to COP. So if that was happening within the health sector, if it was happening within the other sectors as well, I tell you these people won't be coming here and playing, you know, the game of hide and seek and trying to manage us by telling us, you know, things and, and, and telling us that things will be better, but actually they are representing uh, the fossil fuel interest. Um, and therefore, if we're able to do this uh, in an organized manner, uh, I mean, we will all already be saying, you know, uh, you, we, we, take it, we take the people to the airport and we tell them this uh, is what is coming from the health sector, this is what is coming from the lawyers, this is what's coming from the community, and you go, but we will be waiting for you here when you're coming back. And then you will have to be accountable and tell us uh, if you really represented us there or you went and represented people. And if you were able to do this, uh, trust you me, they won't have any chance or thoughts of about, you know, representing other uh, interests that are not ours. Yeah, go for it. I think to add to Omar's point, I think it's important for the health community to really engage more with the grassroots sectors, the most impacted by the climate crisis. I think, I know, you know, with the work you do, you're definitely exposed to a lot of that, but I think even outside the direct health context, it's important for us to situate ourselves in the reality of what the climate crisis looks like on the ground. Because why the health is one of the factors that, again, people feel the most. There are also other aspects to it that if we just squash out the human experience into the Western conception of health, like you, you do sort of like leave out a lot of the nuances and the intricacies of the human condition. And it's important to be able to relate to the peasants, the workers, the farmers, the fisher folk who are directly impacted by climate change and other, the, all, all the other social and economic crises we're facing today. And bring that with you when you make your stances, when you, make, when you propose your legislation or go into COP or whatever. That's the sort of, um, those are the narratives you also have to bring with you. Uh, that's it. Thanks, John. Thanks for highlighting that the health system can be quite detached from realities as well. And we need to work hard to make sure that we're speaking and representing communities. Asad, I was going to actually go for closing remarks in a moment, but did you have anything in particular to say about this? Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 just, uh, just one very specific thing, I think, in terms of the negotiations and against we sat in the WHO pavilion. The health community understood that having the tobacco industry within its halls was wrong. And it drove them out and said they should not be influencing health policy on smoking and cigarettes. That you as a community should be making the same call about the vested interests, the fossil fuel industry, the economic interests, not just in this place, but back home in countries where our government's mandates are shaped 
by those same fossil fuel interests. So the health community intervening there gives our communities on frontline the space to build our voices and alternatives in there. If you did nothing else, but it would be that. But secondly, just to recognize all the things we fight about in these negotiations. If you look at the 1992 Climate Convention, they're there. Polluter pays, historical responsibility, finance, etc. It's not enough to get it into the text. It's what we do to hold our countries accountable to what they say that matters. And that, again, is about you building power with everybody to be able to hold their feet to the fire. Thank you, Assad, for those two things. Thank you. Erica, can I come to you? What is the role of the health community in this negotiations, if any? Um, I, I have to agree. Um, I am not particularly, <laughs> I'm not particularly hopeful about the negotiations, actually. But I am particularly hopeful about working with communities in our grounds, in our own countries, in our own contexts. Um, it's not um, a matter of how do, for me, how do we influence the lobby up, but how do we build a movement that makes unstoppable the changes we want to make. And in that movement, my country, Ecuador, have been having a lot of uh, struggles, taking to the streets, stopping, um, stopping uh, their country for uh, 11 days, more than, more than three weeks. The last um, uh, Paro Nacional strike, national strike, demanded to have a cease, a cease of mining and oil issues and, and oil extraction. And we need to start, as health communities, be involved in the struggles of the people. That's Thank point of view. Thank you, Erica. Thank you for encouraging us to be involved in the struggle in the front lines and in our communities and build the importance of building power from the ground up and not only relying on changing from the top down. Oh, trickle down, as they say, which is ineffective and leads to more inequality and poverty and injustice. We've come to end now, as if an hour and a quarter has passed already. <laughs> we just wanted to say a massive thank you to all of you for your very clear messages to us as a health community and broader in terms of what we should do um, and what would be most valuable. Um, given that the power that we wield and the voice that we have. Just wanted to also finally give you, um, just signpost you to the action cards that you should all have access to. It has a QR code which can allow you to sign the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty if you haven't done already and encourage your organization to sign it as well if it hasn't already. Sign up to take part in the People's Health Tribunal, which is happening in April 2023. And also you can read about a global Green New Deal and this document, which is the public health case for a Green New Deal, if you are interested. I think that's everything. I just wanted to say a massive thank you again. Thank you for all your work. Thanks to MEDACT. And thanks all of you for joining in for such a rich and deep conversation and a real conversation. Thanks, everyone.